We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52 is what we'll be covering this morning. And while you're turning there, I just want to share with you a couple things that are going on in the church. Um, I want to first of all thank you guys for your generosity for our Taekwondo team. We have a team of nine going now, and um, so each kid we're aiming for them to raise... How much? How much was it again? I don't even remember. All the kids left that were in Taekwondo, so now I'm in trouble. They're probably downstairs in the dungeon. And um, I, I think each kid was supposed to raise like $500 each. And um, to your generosity, I think the team's total, we just have to raise 400 more. So um, total. So we thank you so much uh, for supporting that. Um, also, uh, because of how the Lord's blessed us financially here, we've, we're, we're, we have a lot of different works uh, in the making, and um, one of them is a, a community center remodel across the street. And so uh, we've been talking about this for a while, and the reason why it, it, one of the reasons why it's so slow is that we're, we're just really frugal with our money. And so um, we have an electric, electrician friend that is extremely busy and trying to coordinate with him to work on our audiovisual stuff. And, but October 31st is a, kind of our deadline because we're going to show a movie there in our new audiovisual system there. And then this thing will finally get fixed too. That, that's uh, this projector uh, funny-duddy stuff. It'll, it'll be an actual thing here. So um, that's why it's so slow. But that being said, a lot has been done over there. There was a whole electric panel upgrade uh, before it used to look like Frankenstein because people would just do their own things. Now it's all together. PG&E came out. We had electrical engineers come out, it's, and it looks neat. It looks like R2-D2 or something like that. And then um, we had new doors put in there. Um, I don't even know what else we have. We, a bunch of little stuff has happened, and, and so we are, we're also going to redo that, that floor. And so yesterday at 1,000 Mothers to Pre- Prevent Violence, I had a chance to speak with the assistant chief of police as well as the the kind of head person for the PAL program, the Police Activities League, in partnership with things going on in our, our community center. But what we wanted to do, instead of just pay for everything, which we can do because of your generosity, uh, we wanted to get some buy-in and some ownership from the community before we just kind of throw money out there and, and then there's no kind of traction for it. So we wanted to build that community and so we can all kind of invest our sweat equity into it when we tear that carpet up and kind of wax it down or or sand it down and things like that. So we wanted that kind of buy-in instead of just saying write a check and let it be done. So that's for kind of the more labor-intensive stuff. The audio-visual stuff, it's more technical, needs some professionals, so we're not going to do that for that, so we're going to put that in. But that's kind of the mindset that we have moving forward into that. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. Let me just pray. Lord, um, these are the silent years that we're going to be talking about from uh, kind of your, your teenage years all the way until you were 30. And we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to fill us as we open up your word and, and go through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just read that text first, and then um, I'm going to focus more on the beginning and the end of that text. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. 
And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy stayed, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supporting him, or supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Notice in verse 40. Uh, when Jesus was a child, that the body, the physical body, was put first. And then the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And then in verse 52, when Jesus became a young man, you notice that the mind was put first. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. Now keep that in mind as, as we kind of move forward here. Then the Bible just goes silent about Jesus from ages 12 to 30. And there's nothing recorded about him other than verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And you notice that Jesus' evolution in terms of development and growth, that they were slow, they were steady, and it was sane until he reached 30. And some would read this section of Scripture and think that Jesus was some precocious 12-year-old boy, that he was more mentally developed for his age, but I'm, I'm just not so sure about that. I believe that he was very intelligent, really intelligent, but I don't know if he was born with some mental edge. And if so, then why these 18 years of silence, right? Luke chapter 3, verse 23 tells us Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So I'm just not so sure that Jesus gave himself or God gave him this advantage um, Mainly because if he didn't give himself an advantage economically or culturally or ethnically or educationally, then why mentally? Or why any, any other way? And, and what, what Jesus did with his brain was, was he allowed God to do with it as God willed. And I think he was really good at that. So do we allow the Holy Spirit to get hold of this body of ours, of this brain of ours, until we develop this expression of the mind of Christ? Do we allow that to happen? And the Spirit of Jesus is given to us when, when we're born again, right? When we accept Him into our life, when we're born again, and the Spirit of Jesus is given to us. But to have the mind of Christ, to have it of Christ, that has to be developed. That has to be nurtured. That has to be worked upon. And, and how our minds manifest into Christ's likeness depends on how we use our brains, and when I say mind, I don't mean a spiritual mind because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it tells us that we have the mind of Christ. So we have that spiritual mind. What I mean by mind is how we express it in the physical form. See, see God doesn't give us our ideas. Right? By, by having that as a starting point, that God gives us our ideas, it's kind of dangerous to start there, and it's kind of the start of heresy. 
It also removes any responsibility from us because we use God as an excuse to our ideas. See, God doesn't give us our ideas. He, God has us use His ideas in order to convey His mind. And I also don't, don't think that Jesus just kind of magically became wise or, or magically grew in stature. It was this slow, steady, sane process. And I think it happens just like it does for all of us. It's slow, steady, but some of us not so sane, but slow and steady. And I do think that Jesus was the smartest man to ever live. But it was this slow, steady, developing process. Which is why I think there were these 18 years of silence before Jesus began his ministry. Now from a Jewish standpoint, 30 years old has some significance. That is the age when it was believed that physical maturity and soul maturity were reached. And before 30, a man wasn't considered a full-grown man. When you were 12, you were considered a man, but you weren't a full-grown man. 30 is when you were a full-grown man. Before 30, life was full of promise, it was full of expectation, adventure was still out there, and, and things were developing in your life. But after 30, life was to be lived according to those promises before 30, those expectations before 30, and the vision when you were younger than 30. So at 30, we have Jesus who is physically mature, mentally mature, spiritually mature, and you see that 30 years of silence, that was a really valuable time. And it allowed time for Jesus' spirit and soul to be ready for his mission. Now, what is the spirit? The, the spirit is the soul expressing itself in a physical body. And our bodies have this incredible influence on our souls as do our souls on our bodies. And when our bodies are developing into adulthood, there's this sudden awakening of the soul to these religious influences in our life. And so it's, it's at this time that things can get a little dangerous. It's at this time that others recognize the grace of God in some young person's life and, they, and, and think of it as something more than God just simply opening up that soul and that young person's life in the process of development. That person is developing. And this is the place where, where we, the church, or other, other people, other Christians, place this importance at this early age of this process of development. But God doesn't necessarily do that. See, God's not in a, in a hurry. God is working. God is developing. God is maturing. And we see it quite often where, where people have, have built up these hopeful expectations on, on these religious uh, on the religious promise of teenagers and young adults, college students, and after a while, um, that, that kind of fervor fades away, and, and so we unwise people say, oh, that person just backslid, that, that teenager just backslid, or that young person just backslid. And they probably didn't backslide as much as the people around them encouraged them to be precocious young people, misclassifying them as spiritually mature when they were actually more mentally mature and they were in the development process, yet we're putting these expectations on them and it's not spiritual maturity, it was more mental maturity. So we see a teenager, we see this younger person with, with, with wisdom beyond their years and we don't check to see if it's mental maturity or if it's spiritual maturity. And oftentimes it's mental maturity. See, see just physically, biologically, the, the gray matter is being used, it's being formed, but it's not necessarily spiritual maturity. Those are two different things. And if we classify something as spiritual maturity when it's actually mental maturity, then we encourage that young person to be 
precocious. We encourage that person to be conceited and proud. And that is pretty irresponsible on our part. We're wrongly placing our faith in those when they are developing spiritually. And they ought to be allowed to develop properly to to a point where it's a point of reliability. And this is true for us physically. It's true for us mentally. It's true for us spiritually. Right When, When we're born babies... And physically, we're, we're smaller than what we will become as adults. And there's this growth process. And it's the same mentally. right? None of us are, are born with what we know as adults. Some of us aren't too far from that, but I digress. <laughs> Spiritual maturity is similar. Right? Spiritual maturity is similar. There are these stages of development, just as there are stages of our development physically and mentally. And in our spiritual maturity development there are times when god allows us to experience silence we experience silence when things might seem a little bit dull in our life when 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 we don't feel anything when we don't feel what god is doing or when we don't realize that things are happening in our life there's just these silent periods but those periods of silence those blank spaces in our life those are so valuable so valuable if we go on with, with spiritual perception too quickly, we, we risk not giving sufficient time to work it out. To, to work out those things that are happening within us in that silent period. If we, if we don't give sufficient time to work it out, it will actually result in degeneration, in stagnation, rather than work for us towards regeneration and maturity. So we have to embrace those silent periods. It's not that God's not doing anything. Something is happening. And we are, we are to work out what God works in. And during those silent periods, God is working within. And so you work, work it out in and through our senses, through our touch, our sight, our sense, uh, our, our taste, our hearing. And as we start working it out, God will reveal more of it within us. And be aware of how we approach spiritual matters. Right? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I am afraid that as, a, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Unless our emotions come from that indwelling grace of God and, and, and worked out appropriately, it just won't have a good outcome. And thank God that Jesus' soul was in a body just like ours and that for 30 silent years, He showed us a holy life through all these stages of development that we go through ourselves. Now, spiritual maturity is reached by obedience to the will of God. And this is something that is developed. Jesus had this down pat. He knew how to do this. And this is something I think Jesus was the best at. Obedience to the will of God. And some people mature into an understanding of God's will more quickly than others because they they obey more readily. They sacrifice their will more readily for the will of God. They they steer clear of of their own small, determined opinions and they look for God's opinions. And and, you know, it's those small, determined, strong-minded opinions that actually get us in trouble. Right, those convictions that are, that are our own and they aren't of God's and that we hold on to them so tightly and we won't budge even though those aren't God's opinions. And those are the opinions that hinder our spiritual growth. They hinder our ability to grow in grace. 
They make us bitter. They make us intolerant. They make us dogmatic. And they are just simply unchristlike. And that's what I think Jesus was so skilled at, that he was the best at. He was totally obedient to the will of God. And not his will, but his Father's will, right? Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, will, will is not an ability or a mental power that somebody has like, uh, like memory or reason. Will is the whole person active. And what Jesus did was he sacrificed his own natural desire to the will of his Father. Jesus' natural desire would have been to stay in the temple. But what did that verse say? He went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he didn't just go with them for a little while. He stayed there for 18 years. And so this is an illustration of how Jesus used his will throughout his entire life. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus increased in wisdom by applying his will to the will of the Father. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. To do God's will always ends up in the growth of grace in your life. And so let's just call this the will zone. Okay, Are we in a place in our life where we are about the will of God and not about our own will? And if we aren't, let's just call that the kill zone. Okay, kill zone. Because going about our own, our own will brings about destruction. Right? Whenever we go about our own will, independent of God, it ultimately leads to destruction. So are we in this will zone or are we in the kill zone? Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus in that verse is referring to the power he had of self-sacrifice. Do we have that power? And the answer is yes, we do, right? Because don't you estimate what something is going to cost you whenever you do something? Whenever you purchase something, whenever you want to spend time on something, your energy on something. When you're going to use your time, your energy, your efforts, your money on something, you always figure if you're willing to sacrifice for that something. You do it already. And you weigh whether it's worth it for what you currently have for something else, for something that you want. And you make that estimation, and depending on that evaluation... You make a choice. So Paul did the same thing, except he didn't only estimate what something was going to cost him. He lived out that cost, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And as we grow in maturity towards God... The things outside of God just aren't as valuable anymore. And you read the life of Jesus, including this part of of the text this morning, that Jesus kept his eyes fixed on one purpose, and it was the purpose of his Father. The purpose his Father had for his life. And it's actually summarized in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. That's the summary. 
And what's the next part of that verse? He took the twelve disciples aside and on the way. See, see, we have to go with Him there. We have to go with Him there. We have to go with Him to the cross. And Jesus was deliberating to the disciples what was going to happen to Him in Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 20. And that is where we have to go with Him. And one of the greatest traps in the Christian life is that we get caught up in this thinking of the number of things that we might do. All these things that we might do. Jesus never did the number of good things that He might do or could do. He did everything He ought to do because He had His eyes focused on His Father's will and He sacrificed Himself for His Father and His Father's will. See, self-sacrifice isn't this one-and-done proposition. Self-sacrifice is something to be done for the rest of our lives, day by day, hour by hour, sacrificing ourselves, sacrificing our will to Jesus, where where self-realization is gone, and Christ-realization is very prevalent, right in front of our face, it has come into our life. Now some of us might be thinking, that's just way too hard, That's, that's too difficult. There's no way to do that, but... But isn't that true for anything worth reaching for? In the natural world, nothing is ever reached without difficulty that is worth reaching for, right? Whether you want to master your career, whether you want to be a master of a ninja, whatever, a new language, a subject matter, a hobby, whatever. The the sacrifice, there's a sacrifice in reaching those things that are worth reaching for. A couple of days ago... um, our family, we were at the park, and um, we noticed this French family over there, and they were speaking French. I wanted so badly to be able to speak French. I was like, that, that's just beautiful. They could be arguing, but it sounds so beautiful. I have no, I, I have no idea. It's just like, that's, that's, just gore- that's a beautiful language. But, but I haven't made a sacrifice to learn that language. Right, the, the best I could do, like we had this conversation, and uh, uh, bonjour, and then they start speaking French. Uh, no, 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 I, I speak English. And the only thing I could do was like bonjour and bonsoir. That's it. That no matter how much I wanted, I wanted to be able to speak French. I wanted to be able to say those beautiful things. Because like I speak Chinese, and that sounds like you're arguing, even if you're talking nice. <laughs> like that, it's just, I can say this, it's an ugly language. It's just like, ah, and, and they're like speaking love to each other. But like French is like, French is like, they can be arguing and it's like, oh, they, they must be just like terms of endearment. Like, this is just how it is. But anyway, I've never attempted that mastery of the French language. I've never reached for that. And the same principle applies in the spiritual world. Paul understood it. He wrote it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So in our spiritual life, how focused are we to do the will of God, to fulfill the purposes of God? And I'm not talking about religious fanaticism. What I'm talking about is simply doing the next thing you know God wants you to do. That's it. The very next thing. When people come to Jesus, whether they're a brand new Christian or or whether they are younger in the faith, some Christians tend to have this laundry list of to-dos and not-to-dos. And we've been so blessed here. We've had people come into the Lord and I want them to come talk to me. I, I don't have a laundry list for them. 
that says, okay, uh, go to church, read your Bible, pray, go to small group. Um, and then I also don't have a stop-do list either, like stop sleeping with that person you're not married to, stop getting drunk, stop uh, looking at porn. All of those things are great things. I'm not saying they're not. All of those things are good things. But self-sacrifice to G- Jesus isn't that complicated. And it's not a whole laundry list of things that can be so overwhelming to a new believer, to someone that's just wanting to return back to Christ. It's like, it's just too much. You want them to come back to the Lord, and you're like, okay, before you do that, you got to do all this. But how do you think they got to that place in the first place? How do you think they backslid in the first place, or, or that they don't have a relationship with God in the first place? It's probably because someone gave them this laundry list of things, and they're like, I can't do that. That's it's too much. Like, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> right? it, it, it's one bite at a time, and elephant meat is very tough, I hear, when I went to Kenya. I didn't try it. I think it's illegal. But anyway, <laughs> self-sacrifice to Jesus is simply accomplishing the very next thing He wants you to do, hour by hour, day by day, and you go about it steadfastly. With this sacrifice of self for Jesus as he sacrificed himself to his Father. So if the very next thing is, stop sleeping with your boyfriend. That's the very next thing. You don't have to worry about that other stuff yet. Stop doing that and then you'll get your next step. If the very next thing is, go to church. That's your very next thing. Go to church. And then you'll get a next step. But it's just this one thing at a time. It's just doing the next thing. And the next thing can include doing or stop doing something that we mentioned from that list. But see, this this marathon, it's not a long jump to the finish line. right? The, The marathon is step by step, and you're doing that very next thing that the Lord is placing on your heart. That so so when you do that next thing, or you stop doing that next thing according to what the Holy Spirit is doing, that's what you do, or that's what you don't do. And after you take that first step, take another one, and then take another one, and take another one, and you just do the next thing that you know that God is telling you to do. And I think many of us have a hard time in following Jesus because we've just complicated things. We don't just do the next thing that he's telling us to do. We're listening to all these other people telling us that what we should do when he's just telling you to do the next thing. If you were quiet enough and waited and asked him, he would let you know what that next thing is. And so we have this whole list of things when it's just one simple thing. Following him to the cross. That's the next step. You're on your way to Jerusalem. Next step. It's definitely not an easy thing, but it's a simple thing. And so we see how Jesus matured. The first part of it, part of it was being in the will zone. And the second part of it was being in the wonder zone. Verse 49, And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That incident in verse 49 is the one glimpse we're given of Jesus' 12 years of life where, where we're shown he was so full of wonder. Not wondering that he was in disbelief, not wondering that he doubted everything and he was critical about stuff, but wondering that he marveled. He marveled at what he was starting to just grasp. 
He, he was in awe of God and, and what, uh, what he was understanding, of what he was starting to observe, and, and everything was starting to sink in. And at some point here, he discovered his own unique relationship to God. Being completely open to God and, and being at the temple during, this, during his first Passover, something clicked for Jesus. And we know that it was his first Passover, Passover because he was 12. When a Jewish boy became a man, not a full-grown man, because that happened at 30, but a young man. And so this, here he is, and, you, and think about this. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment. Think of a, the child Jesus, a 12-year-old, in the temple, and just the grandeur of the temple, and all the religious festivities happening around, and where he realized through his spiritual intuition that he was in his father's house. Everything that he studied before that time, when he was being fed into in the synagogue or by his parents, all that pure wonder he must have had, because when he walked into that space, everything started to make sense. And it's the first time he's in this holy city and the temple and the sacred rituals that are happening. And you imagine Jesus' fascination with everything going on here and how things were just coming together for him as he was seeing all these different parts and how they were all coming together. And in his earlier years, he probably had these thoughts. He probably had these thoughts going on. But being at Passover... And seeing everything revealed to him, there was this blast of conscious realization that he was the Son of God. It all made sense. And this is a story of the day when Jesus discovered who he was. That he was the Messiah. Now don't picture some intellectual, precocious 12-year-old boy that just starts telling all the Pharisees how things are and things like that. Because I don't think Jesus was like that. This was a boy full of wonder. He was amazed that his mom didn't know what he knew or understand what he understood, but he wasn't conceited about it. He wasn't proud about it. The mind of a child exhibits the innocence of intelligence. It's just gaining that, right? And I think that's what was happening there in his statement. Jesus was in complete wonderment and stating that he knew a lot of things without conceit, without pride, Now, conceit is a really dangerous thing. Oswald Chambers writes, The starting point of every heresy is the corrupting of the innocence of intelligence by conceit. Now, what does conceit mean? Conceit means to have a point of view. And by having a point of view, it takes this wonder out of life. And and that didn't happen to Jesus. He didn't lose the wonder. He, He didn't start looking down on his earthly parents as he... As something clicked in him, and he didn't say, like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, Mary. You don't know what you're talking about, Joseph. And start calling him by first name and stuff like that. It was mom, right? It was dad. And it's only when we're born again and sanctified that we enter into an understanding of the life of Jesus. And his life is the type of life that the Spirit forms in us when we obey him. When It's full of innocent wonder without conceit. Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Are we still in that wonder zone? Or are we in the blunder zone? Right, The blunder zone where we were prone to make these mistakes because of our conceit. Are we conceited? 
Are we conceited people? Are we proud people? Do we have points of view that take the wonder out of life? Are we in the wonder zone or are we in the blunder zone? Now, how did Jesus have such spiritual maturity? Simply put, Jesus was in the zone. Right? And if you're an athlete or if you're a musician or an artist, you kind of know what this means. You know when, when someone is in the zone, that athlete is unstoppable. They're in the zone. When, when someone is, some artist is performing at their peak and it's just the most beautiful thing, they're in the zone. And that was Jesus. Jesus was in the zone. He was constantly in the will zone. He was constantly in the wonder zone. And thirdly, he was constantly in the wait zone in our text during this period of time. Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And was submissive to them. See, Jesus was this incredibly patient person. Jesus, the Son of God, was submissive to Joseph, a carpenter, and Mary, this woman whom he heard stories about, terrible stories about on the playground when other kids would fill him in on what other parents, what their parents thought of her. Now, have you ever thought about the significance of those 30 years? Those 30 silent years? Have you ever thought about the significance of waiting or those long periods of times of waiting? Waiting in the upper room, us waiting for the second coming of Jesus? Waiting? And if we gathered all those years of waiting, we brought them into our present era, and we measured all those periods of waiting Many of us would probably define that as a waste of time. What a waste of time. All those years. We've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus' return. What a waste of time. And you read all these different things out there about how religion's stupid and all this stuff. And, and these people, why don't they go do this stuff, whatever. And people look at it and say, what a waste of time. And from the viewpoint of God, this is the waiting zone. From any other viewpoint, this is a baiting zone. Where we're tempted to bite and we're pulled away from what God has for us. And we're in such a hurry. Why are we in such a hurry? Why do we hurry people into ministries before they're ready? Jesus didn't do it until he was 30. This is a quote from Henry Nouwen's Making All Things New. I feel a burning desire to preach the gospel. But I know in my heart that now is the time to pray. To read to meditate, to be quiet, and to wait. It makes no sense to preach the gospel when I have allowed no time for my own conversion. I feel a tension within me. I have only a limited number of years left for active ministry. Why not use them well? Yet one word spoken with a pure heart is worth thousands spoken in a state of spiritual turmoil. Time given to inner renewal is never wasted. God is not in a hurry. And how often do we hurry people into the work of God or put those pressures even on ourselves to do something? And why is that? Right, do, we, do we want to experience some spiritual highs or, or do we have some dream or do we receive some calling or is there some thrill we're after or, and, and whatever we're after? Is that more self-fulfilling than fulfilling for God? Is that more to feed us than it is for the glory of God. And before we, we go do things outward for God, there are things that, we, that need to be done inward by God. See, God is more concerned about you than what you can do for Him. And so let's take preaching, for example, because I actually get this quite a bit. 
where people want to preach. They want to teach from the pulpit. And they want to fill in for me whenever they're gone or whatever. And, um, and I, get, I get this all the time, especially like earlier on where people were just like, oh, whenever you're going to get this transition stuff. Because I'm relatively new to this. I've only been doing this about two and a half years. But so they, so they get this calling. And so for me, I'm like, really? That's your calling? You, you were called to preach? Because I guess I am, but I really did not enjoy the process. Right? right. If you are called to preach, God will put you through some tests that you never thought you would go through. And believe me, believe me, some of you have been th- with me through these past three years. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I have an elder that's laughing at me right now. You know exactly where I'm coming from. This, this bites. Right? If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, come with me to my next counseling session because I'm still receiving counseling for it. And... To testify for God is absolutely vital, but, but don't open your mouth as a preacher unless you're truly called by God. And if you're called to preach and teach, it'll be more like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, where Paul writes, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. See, it's not always a delightful experience. It, don't get it in your head that being up here is fun and it's enjoyable. And, and, the, and the rest of the week, it, it's not fun either. Right? It, the, what, what, what you do during that week to prepare for this. And, and at times, yes, it's great. It's awesome. And actually, there's a lot more like encouragement than you get from the negative side. But that one thing... Even if you get a hundred good things and you get one critical email or someone comes up to you and says, oh, you interpreted the scripture all wrong. Let me tell you, since my education is so great and I know everything and the Holy Spirit has filled me, but not you. And all this, and, and all this stuff that's not done in love. I can, I can take it if you come with me in love and I know you prayed for me and all this stuff. But how many people are really there? Right? And, 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 the, and slander. That people want to talk bad about you and it's directed towards you. Those aren't good times. Those aren't good times at all. And I, I, I don't want my stuff on iTunes and stuff like that. I don't want, I don't want people throwing tomatoes at me. Just let me preach it once and let's just be done. Like, I, don't want, I don't want you to use ammunition against me for other things, right? And one of the dangerous things happening to the church is, is that we're seeking spiritual experiences without being rooted in the Word of God. And I think that's probably the problem. That it's not just preaching, but it's, it's other ministries that you can involve yourself in. And whenever you interact with people, there's this risk of getting hurt. Of things going bad. Unfortunately. It's just how it is. So how do we keep grounded, even though you get all these lobs of criticism and all these lobs of negative stuff and people telling you this and that and, and go here or whatever and, and all this stuff. How do you do that? You do it by being rooted in the Word of God. That's how Jesus kept grounded. That's how all the disciples kept grounded. A large part of it is being rooted in the Word of God. And in those 30 years of silence, Jesus must have just been saturated, saturated his entire being into the Word of God. How do you think he amazed those people when he was 12 years old? 
that first 12 years of life, he must have just been like reading all the time. Or being at the synagogue and, and listening and, and, and just gaining all this stuff all the time. And one of the dangerous things happening to the churches is that we're not being rooted in the Word of God. We're seeking other things. We're seeking spiritual experiences. We're seeking doing good works. Working things out within so that, so that we, we need to work things out within. So that the Word of God is, is, is spoken into our life and it's, our lives are rooted in the Bible and many in the church are seeking out to doing these good works, these good deeds without the Bible as an anchor and that's just dangerous. They, like, like all these social justice issues, right? And all these new exciting ministries and we want revival and we want all these really good things. They're all good things, and we pray for those things. And those are good things, but what happens to those good things without God's Word? Matthew chapter 13, verse 6, Since they had no root, they withered away. It's just simply not sustainable without the Word of God in our lives. All those good works, they are good works, but they're not sustainable things without the Word of God. They're all important things to do. They're all good things to do, but they just won't last without God's Word. Now you picture all those silent years of Jesus and He was shielded by God, His Father, until all those awesome forces of His life were were developed, they were understood, and because He was patiently waiting in the wait zone. Dallas Willard says, You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, for hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our world today. How patient are we? How hurried are we? In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And throughout Jesus' life, from his first cry as a newborn baby to his last cry on the cross, Jesus' life was not his own. A lifetime of sacrifice, a lifetime, he was not hurried. And through Jesus' life, there's this clear realization of His authority over body, soul, and spirit. And it was in those silent years that Jesus matured to that authority. And some of us may be saying, but yeah, He's the Son of God. You know, that's, that's, that's what it was. And yes, He was the Son of God. And He was also the Son of Man. Jesus showed us by His example that we are to endure to become sons of God. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. He learned from His suffering. Do we think it's going to be any different for us if that's how it was for the Son of God? And I'm sorry if you don't like to hear that. We're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, right? And the, this period of maturity, this period of being a full-grown man. Who was it that, that reached maturity? The Son of God as man. Who reached maturity of all physical powers, of all soul powers, of all spiritual powers. And not until that point was it... Re- that period of 30 years old, did God thrust him into three years of service? It's a long time of preparation. 
Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 29, For I always do what pleases Him, His Father. Now where did Jesus learn that power? 30 years of silence. 30 years. Can God say of us, that soul is learning line upon line, precept upon precept from my word. That soul is not as grumpy, is not as dense as it used to be. That soul is, is getting slowly to the place where I will be able to do with it what I did with my son. That soul is no longer rebelling against discipline. Can God say that about us? Can God use us as he used his own son? How did God use his own son? How did God use Jesus? God took his hands off. God removed his hands. And he said to the world, he said to the flesh, he said to the devil, do whatever you want. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When we're right with God, we can expect to be unleashed to the world. We can expect God to go for it. You'll suffer though, but go for it and you'll learn. And in spiritual maturity, all powers are are completely attuned with poise, with peace, with balance, with calmness. And God can begin to trust us with his work. John chapter 14 verse 23 If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What is Jesus referring to there? He is referring to the freedom of the disciple to keep his commandments. We as humans are incapable of keeping the commandments of God unless we're born again of the Holy Spirit. And freedom is the ability to keep the law. And then the rest of that verse, in verse 23, it reads, And my Father will love him and and will come to him and make our home with him. Communion with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the sinner. You and me, all together, saved, we're saved by grace. Communing together with the, the, the Trinity. And that is the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what he did. Those 30 years were so valuable to prepare him to go to Jerusalem, to die on the cross, to endure everything that he went through to disciple those guys and spread the the gospel throughout the world until this day. Let's pray. God, thank you for your silent years. And we read so much about what you did after during your three years of ministry. But the amount of preparation, that time where you physically matured, and you mentally matured, and you spiritually matured. We ask, Lord, that we just wouldn't hurry, that we would be patient with how you are working in our life and the things that we are are going through, that we would learn from them. And even if it's suffering, that we would learn through, through that and that we would be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.